time since our political and monetary systems hasn't been working for the majority of the developed nations. Are we relying too much on the government that we're losing our freedom? Hi, this is Takatoshi Shibayama, the host of the Future Design Podcast. In this two-part episode, we have Jim Mascara, who's a financial consultant to SMEs and author of non-fictional and fictional books that touches on futuristic topics such as politics and finance. He talks to us about how to escape the Wizard of Oz, who's burdening our financial freedom, and reflect on the government's role in our lives. Design Podcast. Just before we start, I have an announcement I'd like to make. I've started a newsletter, a weekly one for each episode which gives a summary of what you would expect to hear on the show. The other one is a monthly newsletter, which has actionable takeaways from the last four episodes some of the research materials and books I read to prepare for the episodes, and lastly, my show notes that has my opinion on the specific topics from the episodes. If you would like to receive this letter, please visit fdpod.co and subscribe. That's fdpod.co. I hope you find value in them. So you've been a very active uh, talker and, and you write books about even fictional and non-fictional books on the economy currently and how you think is going to shape out in the future. Can you give us the listeners a little bit of a snapshot on where we are in the monetary system and the economic system that put us into this crisis situation? Well, uh, for your uh, viewers and listeners, uh, I'm from the United States. I'm from the middle part of the United States. Uh, St. Louis, Missouri is where I'm from. Um, and so my view obviously is going to be probably a little bit more U.S. centric. Um, but I, I think that based on what I've seen over the course of the last few years, uh, specifically since the last uh, global financial crisis in 2008, uh, you really have a synchronization of, I think, of action between, you know, central banks, um, you know, United States Federal Reserve, Bank of Japan, uh, Singapore Monetary Authority, you know, you name it. And um, the what's been happening, I would say, over the course of the last decade, you know, let's say even 12 years now, is the, the central banking authorities across the world have worked feverishly to fight off deflation. And what I mean by that is this, um, I define deflation, and I do this in my books, as, as kind of a, um, a, a reduction in the supply of money and credit. And it's not just necessarily credit that's being issued by, uh, not even so much central banks, but commercial banks, which really that's where most of the money comes from is commercial banks. Um, when you see a reduction in financial asset values, that is very, very deflationary. Because if you think about, you know, uh, if, if a financial asset has a collateral value and all of a sudden that collateral, you know, doesn't have the same value that it once did, that's very deflationary. Um, and it has ripple effects that we've seen in various crises, uh, where there was the Asian crisis of, you know, 1997, uh, you know, uh, the dot-com crash of 2000, um, the global financial crisis, each one of those cases, uh, you'll see some significant reduction in the value of financial assets. And so what you see is in the, the response by central banking authorities is to counteract that through the creation of what? More money, right? To try to, to, try to uh, recapitalize those values. And what that means is um, that money gets created, as you know, electronically out of thin air that didn't exist before. And so you're injecting new amounts of credit into, you know, economies worldwide that didn't previously exist. Uh, so what does that do? It, uh, it, it inflates the value of the balance sheets, obviously, of the central banks. 
But one of the things it does, I think, is it transmits um, improper signals, if you will, particularly with respect to interest rates and financial values. And what's, what's happened, I think, over time is you'll see an exacerbation of trends that then create you know, more, more financial bubbles. Uh, I came up with a term a couple, three years ago. I called it the omni bubble, which is the bubble of everything. And I'm not claiming first use of the term, but I've used it pretty frequently now. I have a hashtag with it and everything. And so, so really that's the environment in which we've been operating. Now, so what are some consequences of that? Well, some consequences, as I mentioned, you know, further inflation of, of financial asset values, improper transmission of interest rate signals, um, significant impacts in what? Income and wealth inequality. Um, and, you know, my feeling is that a lot of, uh, a lot of social angst, you know, social manifestations that you see now are uh, economically based, right? Uh, people tend to protest, you know, when their economic well-being has been threatened. And, and particularly, you know, in, in the United States, when you've seen, you know, Wall Street kind of benefit from government largesse at the, at the expense of Main Street. And I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago about what I thought the next president of the United States, not who it would be, but what they would sound like, and that you would see a much more progressive agenda you know, much probably like you see, you know, you see more spending on, you know, social programs. You've seen that in Europe. Um, I, I can't speak to Japan necessarily. Uh, I know Singapore probably doesn't have a, a super well-developed, you know, social welfare system. I could be wrong there. Um, but that's, that's the movement that I predicted a couple of years ago that you would see. And lo and behold, it's happened in a very, very large way, certainly in the first few months of this year, you know, with respect to, uh, you know, the COVID crisis. You know, we're seeing uh, direct payments to citizens by way of you know, direct checks, uh, extra money and, and unemployment benefits from the federal government, uh, guaranteed loans from the federal government for businesses. Um, so these are very, you know, very, very progressive um, platforms, if you will. And, and I think you're going to see a continuation of that because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, an article I wrote last year about how, um, how dangerously inflated, you know, equity values were, particularly in the United States. I wrote that article in November. I said this was the, most, the riskiest stock market in, in history. And of course, you know, about two, three months after that, you know, we saw a big plunge. And um, we're certainly nowhere near the, the, the end of a, of a bear market. Um, we're certainly nowhere near the end of the, um, let's call it a, an economic crisis that we're in right now. Um, it's going to take a while to even get back to GDP figures that we were, you know, last year, certainly in the United States and I'm sure elsewhere. And um, the response, I think, will be once again, you know, you see more government intervention. You'll, you'll see that across the world. And, you know, we can get into this a little bit further. It's like, well, what's, what, what, what's the friction that would stop that, right? You know, when does that stop? And I think we can, again, we can develop that a little bit further. Well, the whole the Keynesian economic model was about, okay, so even we do create more money and put it out into the market, then you can raise interest rates later because the economy is growing and, and you can pull that money out of the, the, the economy. But now over the past 12 years, they've been doing that, but we haven't seen any money being pulled out of the market at all. And it seems like now it's, it's become a, a little bit of a broken system to me because all this money printing hasn't turned out any, any economic benefits for the majority of the population. We don't see this massive growth of, of economies uh, in the US, in Japan, in Europe, in all these places. Are we at a point where our developed nations have stopped growing and it's, it, we have to accept that we're not going to grow as much as before? 
there was a book that was written um, by uh, a gentleman by the name of Ken Rogoff and then Carmen Reinhardt a few years ago. It was called This Time is Different. And uh, I actually bought that book. Uh, it's not stimulating reading. You know, maybe if you're having a problem, maybe falling asleep, you know, maybe some sort of reading like that. But it contains a lot of valuable information, a lot of historical monetary information. And one of the things that they identified was that when countries reach about 90% of GDP or higher, um, it actually starts to throttle their growth. Or debt to GDP, it starts to throttle their growth. Um, you know, as you were talking off the air, you know, Japan's in the 200 plus percent range. United States now, before COVID was 106, maybe 107. It's probably going to increase to, you know, 120. And I always point out, by the way, that, you know, when you use that figure in the United States, even last year when it was 106 percent or 7 percent, which is obviously well over 90, that doesn't really take into account the full picture uh, because that's just funded debt. And I was explaining to somebody in another uh, another interview today that, um, it doesn't include any of the unfunded liabilities, right? So in other words, what obligations will the United States or other economies have in the future, right? That if you take the present value of them, what are they now? Well, of course, you know, we don't have a stockpile. We don't have a, you know, a rainy day fund for that. Well, that debt is multiples higher than the funded debt. So when you take that into account, which is, I mean, it's real debt, right? It's something that has to be done in the future. You know, I'm sure that, you know, you're probably looking at uh, levels in the United States that are surely over 200%, right? And, and I think what you've seen uh, over the course of the last few years is uh, when governments are spending more money, they're getting less bang for their buck, you know, no pun intended, right? Um, it, it's the, the Keynesian multiplier, if you will, that, that whole concept has, has vanished, right? It doesn't really exist. And, um, you know, one of the things that Keynes talked about was, is, you know, during uh, good economic times, you know, you should be saving money, right? You shouldn't be running large deficits. And that was probably one, one of several things that I pointed out late last fall was that if the economy of the United States is so healthy, like the people in Washington are telling you, why are we running trillion dollar deficits, right? Remember the unemployment rate was low, you know, you had GDP was high. Um, why was that? Of course, there's no explanation for that other than, you know, we're, we're spending too much money. And, and it shows you, we were talking off air, how much control, right, you know, governments have over the economy. And, and their inclination right now is to continue to do more of that. So the question is, you know, where does that stop or what mechanisms or frictions occur so that doesn't happen anymore? Or what, what, what event catalyzes a crisis that's even bigger than you have now? Yeah, what's interesting to me is that when you said that if an economy or the country has more than 90% of debt to GDP, then it, it stalls their growth. But is all the, the growth of the economy really run by the government? Because you see all these private companies generating a lot of growth as well. And, and you know, every, every quarter we see, you know, month, uh, quarter to quarter growth of revenues from companies and, and or year on year we see growth from companies. Why is that not contributing to the growth of the economy? Oh, I think it absolutely is. I mean, I think there's some companies that are, I mean, clearly, like if you look at Apple, right, they're wildly profitable. Google, wildly profitable. Uh, Tesla, you know, that, that's, a, that's a whole nother issue. Um, I, I've read, I wrote an article actually earlier this year where I kind of talked about, you know, what was going on with Tesla. And if you've, if you've paid attention here recently, you know, Tesla now is the most valuable car company in the yeah, world it's insane which 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 makes no sense right and, and again nothing against the vehicle I, I love the way they look i'd love to own one but i mean let's let's understand here that you know they deliver a fraction of the cars that toyota does and and you know you've got 
uh, a number of entries now that are going to compete against them wholeheartedly. I mean, and you know, one thing I told people about Tesla is, you know, it's it's hard to manufacture a car. It's one thing to you know produce one car, have a neat design, and have celebrities you know fawn all over you, but when you got to produce a lot of cars, right? You have to deliver them, and you have to service them, and you have to make profit on them, right? That's a difficult proposition. But yeah, there are some companies that absolutely, you know, are contributing, you know, well to the economy. But let me counter that for you. Uh, in the United States, um, there are about, I thought I read a figure, somewhere in the 20 to 21% of companies that are in this, uh, what do they call zombie status, in which they, um, they are, their cash flow is not enough to satisfy their debt load, which means that, you know, there's some large percentage of companies that are having to refinance over and over and over again just to be operational. Well, the only entities that I know that can do that are, are federal governments, right? That have central banks that can buy all their debt, right? So at some point, uh, that's not healthy. So I would, <clears throat> I would tell you it's probably like a tale of two economies in some respects that, you know, there are some companies that are doing spectacularly well, right? Um, others that are not. And I can tell you from uh, working with, you know, albeit small and mid-sized companies, um, over the course of the last few years, I've actually been a little bit surprised at you know how how small the margin of safety is uh, for a lot of these small to mid-sized companies, and you know COVID is really um, reflecting that more when you have companies uh, that you know a eight, an eight-week uh, cessation of their business could completely cripple them, right? And they may not exist even with receiving you know government assistance, right, by way of loans. Yeah, I think that's uh, partly because of the whole uh, shareholder return system as well, because a lot of the companies, when they have an excess amount of cash, investors always demand some kind of return on that uh, cash, right? So whether through dividends or reinvestment in their business or share buybacks of any sort. So, you know, maybe that's part, partially the reason why they have such a thin margin of, of safety is because, you know, they, they just return all that cash back. Well, and and as you mentioned, a lot of a, a lot of the um, the growth in the S and P 500, you know, I'm sure other indices across the world uh, have been a direct ref reflection of share buybacks by companies. Well, how did they buy those shares? Where did that capital come from? Well, they went into the debt markets, right? Because interest rates, you know, are abnormally low, so they're able to buy. So now what happens is, you know, yes, they bought back more shares, they've returned more to shareholders. You know, some executives obviously, you know, have done well personally for themselves. But now these companies are carrying large debt loads as well, right? Uh, during a time when um, you know they're, um, you know, we've been hit obviously with a with a global situation now, a global crisis, and you know you just mentioned they don't have a lot of factor for safety. And I can tell you, like in the United States, um, there were some some hard feelings for some of these companies that asked the government for uh, for loans here during this last few months. And yet those same companies were not banking cash during the times that they were making, they were using a lot of that money for share buyback. So, and again, and that's back to that kind of that Main Street versus Wall Street thing that I, that I think that uh, politically will be very, much more difficult for companies now to make that argument. And as I mentioned to you, I think before we, we started recording, um, that's that move towards progressivism, especially in the United States that I, 100%, I, I thought that two years ago, 100% convinced that it's gonna happen now you know, regardless of who gets elected president. It, that, that's a trend that's already, that train's already left the station. Yeah, I always find that the capitalism in the U.S. functioned pretty well until a lot of the corporate money got into the system or the political system, and it turned into oligarchy in, in some way. 
And every time there's a crisis, whether it be in 2000, 2008, or even before that, especially nowadays, is that America turns uh, socialist towards the rich, and then it becomes completely capitalist toward the poor. And right. it always happens over and over again. So people start to think, then where is my socialism? You know, I need some socialism. You know, where's my UBI or where's my handout when government's always giving away money to the, you know, the big corporates uh, in the U.S. So what is the way that you think is, is a way to kind of reverse that system? Because I think that's the root of the problem, right? And, and I think that you might have a, it, it seems like you have, an, you have a, I wouldn't say a problem, but you have an issue about progressivism because, you know, I think you, you, you are in the U.S. and you think capitalism is the best way to go about it or clean capitalism in that sense so that uh, you can reverse the whole trend of what's happening right now. But, you know, we're, we're going into the future where there's going to be AI, a lot of job destruction and globalism hasn't really stopped and it's probably going to accelerate even further despite all the nationalism that is going on in the, in the, in the, in the world in the U.S. and Western Europe as well. You know, what do you think is a better solution for uh, our economic system then? Well, a lot to unpack there. So I'm gonna, it's probably going to be a long answer. So I'll take a deep breath. Um, I wrote an article um, earlier this year and I talked about um, I, really the, um, the failure of capitalism. And, and what I mean by that is not capitalism probably as you and I understand it and probably most students of capitalism understand it. But, you know, you've had a distorted form of capitalism. Uh, I would probably argue not just in the United States, but maybe in, in many countries throughout the world. And, and it gets back to, you know, the monetary authorities, the, the power that they have. You know, we've uh, we've decoupled, at least the United States decoupled from a, from a monetary agreement that started in 1945 and existed until 1971. Now you have free floating currencies and, you know, and, and you can really look at <clears throat> a lot of income and wealth disparities that occurred from after that point, 1971 going forward. Um, so that in and of itself causes a lot of these you know, social problems that you mentioned, um, problems that you see again, my opinion, you see manifesting today's for other reasons, but I think the, the roots of them, like, I, I mean, that, that's really the thesis of a lot of what I write about. The roots are really, uh, you know, financial and economic. And so, you know, you, the question that you asked is, you know, how do we, we rectify that? Well, uh, what I think will happen is a lot of times problems don't resolve themselves until there is a crisis, right? The crisis happens, and then hopefully you have, you know, sane, calm people that can figure out how to resolve the crisis, how to look past the current crisis and, you know, and, and, and figure out the resolution. Um, that's what I try to do. I'm, I'm an engineer by degree. So, you know, we try to be very analytical about, you know, trying root causes of the problem. So from my perspective, um, you know, we're, we're not going to do anything in the near term because the, the response from government will be, hey, you know what, we're going to provide Main Street the following. Okay, I'm 100% convinced of that. Um, there was no um, friction, there's no economic or financial friction to prevent governments from doing that because you know, those create more money. The question then becomes, you know, once that money gets into the system, you know, does it cause other problems, right? Because you know, when, when governments then create more money, it will lead to uh, essentially more corruption, right? Because then that money um, has to be distributed, right? It's got to go to, you know, contracts that, you know, guys go to state governments, local governments and so forth. So everyone will, will want some share of that. Right. So inherently, you know, the, the larger government grows, the more inherent can be the corruption. Right. Um, 
to your, to the credit of where you live right now in Singapore, it has one of the lowest corruption indexes indices in the entire world. It's known as a very uncorrupt place, you know, and that's one of the reasons why Singapore, I believe, is like third in the world in GDP per capita. And, you know, and I'll be honest with you, I bet most Americans don't realize how small Singapore actually is and what an incredible powerhouse it is, right? So that tells you, you know, kind of how that society has been architected monetarily, financially, economically, you know, government-wise and so forth. But I think the end result of all this in some number of years is that there will be some sort of monetary crisis. And the reason I think that is because, you know, the U.S. US dollar has held this preeminent position, right, for, for many, many years as being the world's reserve currency. So everybody has to have it, right, to do something, right, to buy oil, to trade and so forth. Well, if I'm another country and I see the United States just blowing out, you know, their their budgets because they want to, you know, provide more benefits for Main Street or Wall Street or whoever, you know, at some point I'm thinking, hmm, okay, um, so I, I have to play with this currency. And I'm telling you this as an American, right? I have to play with this currency even though they're doing all this, right? And this is supposed to be the reserve currency of the world. And then I'm thinking, if I'm a country that's not particularly politically favored by the United States, well, the State Department of the United States is, is hitting me in the head with a hammer saying, okay, you can't trade with this country, this country, or this country, you know, because we've got, you know, economic and financial sanctions against them. So, I mean, those countries, you know, they have their own self-interest, you know, whether you agree with them politically or not, right, these countries, and I think you know which ones I'm talking about, they're going to do what they need to do, right? Um, you know, whether that's trading amongst themselves with uh, new cryptocurrencies that they're creating or gold-backed currencies, whatever it is, they're going to they're gonna do what they need to do. And I think the end result of all this will be some sort of a new monetary order. Again, we had one in 1945 based on a world war. There's no reason to think that you can't have another monetary order that's going to come forth. They're going to say, you know what? We're going to have something different now. Yeah, not that the U.S. dollar is going to go out of existence, but it's going to occupy a different place in the international financial order. It may not be the world's reserve currency. When that happens, now all of a sudden this favored position that the United States has had, you know, financially, is going to disappear very, very quickly, right? And now all of a sudden, you know, uh, you can see a, a different inflationary condition in the United States than you see today. Um, aside from that, uh, you know, one of the one of the best developments that I think that's happened, you know, from the standpoint of decentralization, right? Everything we've talked about so far is centralization, central banks, you know, central governments. Well, the decentralization that's occurred, uh, particularly since the global financial crisis, was the creation, uh, you know, of blockchain technology. But specifically, as it re regards, you know, I'll just talk about Bitcoin for a second, right? Um, you know, that has significant implications. Uh, I will say that in 2010, when I wrote my first book ever, I published my first book, I actually wrote about Bitcoin. And I didn't write about it from the standpoint of, hey, you know, you need to go get into this from a financial perspective, you know, as an investment vehicle. But I said, you know, this is a very, very significant development from the standpoint of it could completely disintermediate, you know, a, a monetary authority in a country across the world. And, you know, if the monetary authorities are trying to do something and all of a sudden, you know, there's a certain percentage of commerce that's occurring in a cryptocurrency that is on a permissionless blockchain. Wow, that's a game changer, right? And, you know, we, we talked off air that I, that I do some fictional writing. And I have a fictional series, you know, where I, that, that's part of the storyline. And that's kind of a projection that, you know, that's a, that's a competition for government, right? And I, one of the things that you've seen is you've seen governments across the world start to embrace, you know, right, you know, cryptocurrencies to some degree. 
but not from a per permissionless, you know, decentralized blockchain, right? They want a permission centralized blockchain, right? And you're seeing, I think, the, um, the first flavor of that in China, right? Where they're coming up with their own cryptocurrency, but see, it has very, very different implications, right? Because they're going to control it. And I could see a situation in other countries where, you know, uh, all of a sudden there's a digital dollar or a digital or crypto dollar, crypto yuan, you know, maybe a crypto Singaporean dollar, maybe. And, you know, the government says, hey, we're going to pay you right through through these uh, through this digital wallet that you have. Right. And this digital wallet uh, is going to be denominated in our local currency. But then you have to use that digital wallet to do certain transactions as well. And guess what? Well, now that Panopticon, right? I mean, they're, they're seeing everything that you're doing, right? Because again, it's a, it's a centralized permission blockchain. And so that gets into, you know, for some people, hey, I don't have any financial freedom or privacy because they're seeing everything that I'm doing. That has other implications because it could potentially con could control social behavior, right? Because if you're getting paid, you know, through this digital wallet, via this uh, national cryptocurrency, and maybe you know you you know uh, you jaywalked in Singapore, and you know your your penalty is going to be assessed directly to your digital wallet, or you know as you're seeing in China right now, they have certain social restrictions, right? There, there's a social score. Is that social score then going to translate into perhaps credits that you receive in this crypto wallet? So, um, future that I see is uh, an international monetary order at some point in the future that will you know kind of reestablish this whole notion probably of a, uh, a reserve currency, especially from the United States standpoint, more cryptocurrencies probably on a, on a national level uh, and the continued development of, you know, of cryptocurrencies like, uh, like Bitcoin and others, you know, on permissionless blockchains that, you know, will be a thorn certainly in the sides of central governments. And, you know, it's something that I write about from a fictional perspective in my series. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you had enjoyed or disliked the show, please let me know in the comment section. I can only improve or add value to you through your voices. If there are any topics that you'd like me to pick up, please let me know in the comment section as well. I'd love to start chatting with you. And if you'd like to continue listening to the show, please subscribe. Thank you.